Does ADHD affect life expectancy? Dr. Russell Barkley reports that ADHD is much more than a neurodevelopment disorder. It's a significant public health issue. This is Ask the NRC podcast, and you're listening to a special presentation with Dr. Russell Barkley, brought to you by Chad, Ada, and Aiko, recorded at the 2018 conference on ADHD. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, now, as, as I begin here, I just want to point out that uh, we are going to be talking about information that we only just discovered in the past 12 months. So uh, this will be in a journal in early 2019, the Journal of Attention Disorders, but this is pretty new information. I think I've only given this lecture now twice before, and that was at hospitals to physicians. So, uh, so. Today we're going to talk about ADHD, what we've learned over the past oh, 30, 40 years, but especially new information that's come to light in the past 12 months with regard to the potential impact that ADHD may have not only on health, uh, but on longevity uh, as well. To begin with, it's helpful for you to view ADHD the way clinical researchers do, not the DSM view. The DSM-5 is just a description of someone's behavior and if you see that behavior, you might consider whether they have this condition or not. It's not a theory. It's not a conceptualization. Uh, it doesn't really give us much of an explanation of the disorder. So clinical researchers have a somewhat different view on which the DSM is based, but it's quite different. Uh, and it uh, doesn't have to go through all the politics of DSM uh, in order to get disseminated. This is what we know. This is what we see in our research. Uh, and this is something you need to understand in order to uh, be able to appreciate the information I'm going to present in this presentation. So very quickly, how does someone like me look at this disorder? Well, first of all, we understand that this is a disorder, a neurodevelopmental disorder that results in lags in development of two essential brain-related neuropsychological traits in the individual. So it is neurodevelopmental because the evidence for its biological basis is overwhelming, absolutely stunning. So for anybody to say that we don't know what causes ADHD or ADHD isn't part of brain development is to reflect a stunning illiteracy of the scientific literature. So we are dealing then with a clearly neurodevelopmental delay. In what? The first dimension that is impaired is that of inhibition. This will become very important later in this presentation. But it is not just hyperactivity. It is not just talkativeness as represented in the DSM-5, because there's only three symptoms of impulse control in DSM-5, and they're all verbal. Thank you, Chris. That's great. Thank you. So what do researchers see in addition to all of this? Well, first of all, we certainly see the motor disinhibition. This is what gives rise to the hyperactivity that we see early in childhood. But hyperactivity is just an early childhood manifestation of the disorder. It declines steeply with age. It is of no value in the diagnosis of adults. So consequently, the DSM is overweighted on an early childhood symptom and underweighted on some of the more important aspects of disinhibition. Yes, they have the verbal items, big deal. What they don't have, however, is the cognitive impulsivity that is obviously seen ubiquitously in this disorder. These are individuals who don't stop and think before they act, as their mother often cautioned them to do, whose thoughts come too quickly 
and often in a scattered, disorganized format. So it's not mania, it's night bipolar disorder, but what you're seeing is a very disorganized thinking process that takes place in the individual that is simply a result of a failure in the top-down management of ideas, of the flow of thought that's needed to accomplish goals specifically. Now, in addition to the cognitive impulsivity, this inability to reflect, there is also a motivational impulsivity. Individuals with ADHD opt for more immediate rewards now that are smaller and less significant compared to the larger rewards that come later that one has to work toward in order to accomplish. And yet success in human social life is dependent on deferred gratification. And so this area is one that causes a great deal of difficulty for them because it's hard for them to pursue longer-term goals that require self-motivation. Instead, they are opting for little, smaller rewards along the way. So there is a motivational impulsiveness, often called a high time preference, or a steep discounting of the future. What that means is that the longer a consequence is delayed over time, the less value is placed upon it. We all act that way, but people with ADHD show a steep drop-off in that gradient of discounting the future. This is why in my book on adult ADHD, we coined the term time-blind. The individual acts as if there is no future, uh, and that in our world, as you well know, can be devastating. In addition to that, not mentioned in the DSM, though it was supposed to be, uh, is there is a striking problem with emotional impulsiveness associated with the disorder. Again, this is not a mood disorder. This is simply regular emotions, but they're not being inhibited, moderated, and expressed in an acceptable way that is consistent with the context, with others in that context, and especially with your longer-term welfare. Should you be acting this way in this context? And they have difficulty moderating, restraining, and expressing their emotions in an appropriate way. So that is a major problem that has been noted all the way back to 1775 in the first medical article on ADHD published in German. And the emotional problems that go with ADHD have been in the literature forever, even though they get ignored in the DSM-5 criteria. Hopefully in DSM-6 they won't be. So there is this disinhibition dimension that is extraordinarily important for us to understand that is part of ADHD. Now, you may be saying, but what about ADD, which, by the way, is a term that is outdated. You shouldn't be using it. That's the old 1980s term for ADHD. What about that inattentive presentation? What about those people that don't have any impulse control difficulties? Well, they are part of another disorder that researchers have been studying for the past at least 20 years or more, and especially the past five, and that is sluggish cognitive tempo, which is now the second attention disorder being identified and overlaps with ADHD, but is also independent of it. And that is the disorder in which there is no problem with inhibition, whereas at its core, ADHD is a self-regulation disorder, not an attention disorder. And as part of that self-regulation problem, there is the problem with disinhibition. Now, there is also great difficulty with attention, but it's far more than that. The A in ADHD is trivial. Uh, in fact, I often call ADHD among friends like Chris and others the Rodney Dangerfield of psychiatry. It gets no respect. <laughs> and a large part of that is the damn name. I mean, 
inattention, believe me, is not taken seriously by most people on the street. You know, go to Starbucks, get a coffee, wake up, you know, get some sleep. But, you know, that, that's how people look at that. Whereas researchers know that this is, if it's attention, it's executive attention. Well, what does that mean? It means it's the kind of attention that only humans possess. And that is attention to the future. No other species contemplates a now versus a later and then organizes behavior toward that later hypothetical event, that sense of the future. And so ADHD involves an inability to direct attention over time and to construct behavior over time to bridge that gap to get to that future and to be prepared when it arrives. So if there is inattention here, it is a very special kind of inattention. It is lack of persistence toward goals, toward the future in general. Along with that is the difficulty of resistance to distraction, because when you're pursuing a goal, a lot of what happens in life around you is goal irrelevant. You must suppress your behavior in response to those irrelevant events, and they can't do that very well. So even the distractibility is really part of disinhibition more than inattention. And then the major problem with working memory comes in, because all of us get distracted occasionally by events we must deal with right now that interfere with our goals. But we get back on track. We get back on the goal. We pursue the task at hand. We re-engage, and they don't. Once a distraction occurs, working memory is so fragile in ADHD that the goal is lost. And now they're skipping from one thing to another to another, or as those of us who work with these individuals often say, the now just pulls them along by the nose. Wherever the now goes, that's where they're going. There's little guidance by a sense of the future and time itself. And so there is this massive problem with working memory. Working memory is remembering what you're doing, remembering your goal, the steps to the goal, the task at hand. It's an active, effortful, <clears throat> frontal lobe process that requires that you hold in mind what you're doing, what your goal is, and where are you in that sequence. <clears throat> and once a distraction occurs, that's over. So the inattention in ADHD isn't inattention. It's a massive failure in persistence toward the future, resistance to distraction, and working memory. And that, I think, gains the respect this disorder deserves when you phrase it that way. You are looking at a disruption in something that is unique to humanity. It is as bad in its way as autism is in disrupting the social modules of the brain that make us unique and a group living species. So we have a lot of difficulty then with disinhibition, persistence over time, addressing the future, resisting distraction, and holding events in mind that are guiding us over time. And by the way, working memory includes self-awareness, holding yourself in mind. What are you doing? How are you succeeding in the task? Now we begin to understand the seriousness of this disorder, because one of the things that came out of the Milwaukee study, although it was clearly coming out of all the other longitudinal studies, I don't mean to put too much emphasis on my own, there have been many, but if you look at the totality of these follow-up studies, you cannot help but be impressed by one thing. This is one of the most impairing disorders we treat on an outpatient basis. 
There is no disorder that interferes with as many domains of functioning to the degree that this does in the percentage of people affected by the disorder that it does than this one. We think depression, anxiety, relationship issues, substance use issues, oh, these are big deals. They pale in comparison to what this condition does to a person's life. And you can see that as we go through the findings of these studies. These children are prone to early developmental delays, not only in motor development, but also to some extent in language and speech, and especially in self-care and self-regulation, known as adaptive functioning. And then we see that as they move on, they start to become very distressing to their caregivers. Having ADHD, ADHD child in the family is as distressing as having an autistic child in the family. So you can see then that this is a 24-7 management problem for the family. And it poses a great deal of conflict within these families. By the way, it was these findings that initially led people to blame parents. We were seeing all this conflict, and of course, back at that time, back in the days of Freudian psychoanalysis and, you know, other views of life and child development, parents were being blamed for everything, including refrigerator mothers causing autism, and of course, ADHD was being blamed on bad parenting. Uh, and the evidence for that was simply, well, just look at the family. Look at, look at what a mess it is. Look at the chaos, the conflict, the yelling, the directions, the screaming. And then we did a study in 1977, Charles Cunningham and I, where we put ADHD children on and off medication and placebo, and we videotaped their families, and we showed that it was the effect of the child on the family, not the effect of the parents on the child. In other words, parents became normal when we medicated their children. <laughs> you laugh, but that was a stunning result years ago that overturned this idea that bad parenting is the source of this conflict, which it clearly is not. And then, of course, once children enter school, we begin to see the learning problems, the behavioral problems, the disruptiveness, the uh, decline in their academic achievement scores, because as Larry Silver said, I thought brilliantly, ADHD makes you unavailable for learning, and now we have the educational domain being impaired, and then as they start to develop friendships, we find they don't have as many friends, this is especially true if they're aggressive or have conduct problems or oppositional behavior. By the time they're in second grade, half of them have no close friends whatsoever. And then as we follow them up over time, we start to see the development of other psychiatric disorders and learning problems known as comorbidity, where we begin to see oppositional disorder 11 times more common in ADHD. Over 65 to 85% of the kids will get it. They'll get it within two years, and it's based on the severity of their ADHD, and it's related to the emotional dysregulation that is caused by the disorder. So we've learned a lot about how ADHD predisposes to other disorders over time. And if anything, it was the last three findings that led the American Academy of Pediatrics and Child Psychiatry both to recommend over the past few years that we begin to intervene much, much earlier in the lives of these children in order to prevent, if we can, the development of these downstream adverse consequences that you see here. Now, if we continue to follow the kids up over time, a subset, perhaps 25%, in my study as many as 40% or more, began to develop early signs of antisocial behavior, lying, stealing, reactive aggression, and so on. You know this as conduct disorder or delinquency, but if ADHD links up with it, this kind of antisocial behavior often starts much earlier in the lives of these children than is the case for conduct disorder 
that does not have ADHD as a precursor. So uh, the conduct problems we're seeing here are much worse than we see even in the garden variety delinquents that we have to deal with. By the time we look at late adolescence and adulthood, not only do we have this swath of impairments I've already spoken about, but we begin to see that as children become adolescents, as adolescents mature and become physically and sexually mature, they begin to move into domains of life that were not previously available to them, and we start to see more impairments racking up. This is what accounts for the finding in recent longitudinal studies that while your symptoms are declining over time, which they do, and they do in the typical population too, so that's no surprise, your impairments are increasing. So there's a real contradiction here in the research. Disorder is improving while impairment worsens. And that's this reason. You're now being exposed to opportunities for impairment you didn't have previously, such as driving, risky sex, teen pregnancy, sexually transmitted disease, and so on. And then, of course, as they move up into the occupational sphere of life, we begin to see difficulties with job performance, inability to work independently, low achievement, more days off sick, more days unexcused absences or not showing up for work, and so on and so forth. And then further on in life, as these individuals get married or cohabit, we start to see relationship issues developing with their intimate partners, uh, including, uh, sad to say, an increase in intimate partner violence. And then as they have children, we of course begin to see there are some difficulties in the raising of their own children that stem directly from their adult ADHD as well. So, uh, and by the way, this is just a smattering of the outcomes identified in longitudinal studies. There are many, many more. So that is why people like me take this disorder very seriously because it leads to numerous problems. Now, of course, not everybody with ADHD experiences every one of these outcomes. So please, don't get depressed. <laughs> I hear that all the time. Oh, my God. Well, but they're more likely to experience these adversities than with someone else who doesn't possess the disorder. And that's really the important thing you need to, uh, to appreciate. So let's get to the theme of this particular presentation. What led us to begin to focus on health and longevity? Excuse me. About a decade or more ago, I authored what I thought was purely a hypothetical paper on life expectancy excuse me, life expectancy and ADHD. And it was based on some of the early findings from our study and others. But we didn't have any evidence at that point that it was true. It's really a hypothesis, an idea. But here's where the idea came from. First of all, we were seeing in our longitudinal studies, as well as a lot of other literature, that ADHD poses an increased risk for accidental injuries of all types, and specifically traumatic brain injuries. So you can't have this happen too often without some of these people dying from these injuries, which, of course, they do. Uh, and then, of course, we began to see literature that had to do with the increased likelihood of reactive aggression and criminal behavior and sometimes violent behavior, which places your life at risk of earlier mortality if you're going to engage in those things. Uh, and then, of course, we began to see the likelihood that they were not only 40%, maybe 32 to 40% were likely to have a child before they got out of their adolescent years, but that they were more likely to develop sexually trans transmitted diseases, some of which alone will shorten your life expectancy if they go untreated. Think of syphilis, of course, and others. Uh, 
We also began to see that just their overall general physical health was poor, whether we evaluated them in physical exams or whether they reported on their own health as well. Didn't matter. They didn't see themselves as being in as good a health as the typical population was likely to report. Uh, and then we began to see some very specific problems developing, such as fibromyalgia syndrome and uh, a link to migraine headaches. And by the way, this link has now been well established in the largest population study ever done on the comorbidity of psychiatric and medical problems involving millions and millions of individuals. We now know that ADHD shares genes with the risk for migraine headache. So there is a genetic underpinning to some of these disorders in that they share underlying genetic risk. Now, in addition to that, of course, there is the poor diet that we often see impulsive individuals engaging in, what you would call the Western or fast food or high-carb diet that we know is likely to lead to things like diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity, uh, and so on. Uh, and, of course, we see those developing in these individuals as well, including an increased risk for type 2 diabetes. They are two to three times more likely to be obese by adulthood. This is a growing risk over time. They start out typical in their weight, but if you follow them over time, the obesity increases by the time they're adolescents, particularly if they're women. We see a heightened risk for obesity, and among the girls, an increased risk for binge eating disorder pathology uh, and frank uh, bulimia, which is a binge eating problem. It's a little bit of risk for anorexia, but it's not much, and that's related to anxiety. So we see then that their diet, their health, their weight, uh, their uh, risk going forward that stem from obesity uh, and a high-carb diet are beginning to take their toll. Even by age 27, we were able to demonstrate that there was a marked reduction uh, going forward in their cardiovascular health. Or to put it another way, a marked increase in the likelihood that they were laying down atherosclerotic plaques in their arteries uh, and that they were going to have some kind of cardiac event much earlier than other people were likely to do if the findings on their cardiac health were to continue across time. Even at age 27, we could see the shadows of the future beginning to form around uh, the health of these individuals. Uh, and then, as you see here, and we've known for a long time, ADHD, independent of any relationship to conduct problems, is associated with risk for abuse of at least three uh, widely available substances in the population, and that is risk for tobacco, with which they are trying to self-medicate, which makes them even worse in their smoking than typical smokers would be. Uh, we also see a propensity for the use of alcohol, which is being used to constrict time and forget uh, their problems, and then, of course, more recently, the use of marijuana. Uh, if they have conduct problems, of course, the risks for other substances start to come into play, illegal prescription drugs, methamphetamine, heroin, opioids, and so on. But ADHD alone is enough to put you on the pathway toward difficulties with tobacco, alcohol, and marijuana. Uh, as you see here, then, uh, it doesn't take a genius or an insurance agent to infer from this pattern of behavior so far that if we follow you long enough, we're probably going to start to see an increase in your risk of cancer, other uh, diseases that are related to lifestyle, uh, and especially your cardiovascular risks. That's just inference. Nobody's followed these kids long enough to demonstrate that yet, but we're getting there. And then, as I said, the Milwaukee study was the first to identify 
the fact that we were seeing abnormal lipid profiles in these individuals that we could then infer put them at risk for atherosclerosis and uh, earlier cardiac events, particularly angina and heart attack. And then most recently, we've seen an increase in late-life disorders such as the dementias and diseases of the basal ganglia like Parkinson's and of the cerebellum. <clears throat> and that makes sense because ADHD is, in its neuroanatomy, a disorder of these brain structures. So it makes perfect sense that in late life we would start to see these. Uh, also uh, understand that while these studies did find that children and adults treated with medication had higher risk, that was because they're worse. Their ADHD is worse, therefore they're likely to get medication, but it's the worse ADHD that's driving these uh, anatomical risks uh, and not necessarily the exposure to medication. So that's where things were back in 1997 to 2002 when I began to get this idea that there's something on the horizon nobody's talking about. And that has to do with the effect of this disorder on lifespan. So I wrote that editorial. I came up with that hypothesis and then started to look around to see if we could prove it. Well, luckily, some of my other colleagues began to do very much the same. Uh, and it largely based upon a study that was done in California, uh, in San Francisco at Stanford. This is a longitudinal study that was initiated by Terman. Uh, often called the termite study. These were the children that he assessed. These are all gifted children being followed at Stanford over their entire life. Now, Terman's dead, but Friedman took over the study, and he collected all the information on these individuals, including their death certificates, and he went back and took a look at what predicted longevity among these very gifted individuals. And what he found was that there was one predictor. How low in the personality trait of conscientiousness are you? Conscientiousness is one of the big five personality traits, and it refers to all of the things I mentioned on the first two slides. Your ability to think about yourself, your future, your welfare, your consequences, to contemplate yourself over time. It is basically, to put it mildly, the use of your conscience in making decisions about your life. Hence, conscientiousness. So, what Terman found, or what Friedman did using Terman's data, is that children who placed in the bottom 25% of the population in conscientiousness, very impulsive, unregulated, poor self-controlled individuals, if they were just in the bottom quartile of the population, they lost seven to eight years off their lifespan. Conscientiousness accounted for death by all causes. It didn't matter what you died from. This was the background, second-order variable that explained all those first-order variables. Why did you smoke? Why were you drinking? Why didn't you exercise? Why are you overweight? Why are you eating badly? You can look at each of those proximal, what we call a first-order cause of shortened life expectancy. But in the background, explaining all of them was low conscientiousness. So we took that data and we reasoned that if that's what happens if you're in the bottom 25%, people with ADHD are in the bottom 5%. It does not take a genius to reach a conclusion from that study that we're looking at a high-risk group of individuals here that nobody was paying attention to with regard to health and longevity. Then within the past few years, 
we began to see studies like this one showing that ADHD children growing up were two to three times more likely in childhood to die. That was followed by additional research that showed that particularly by late adolescence, there was an increased risk of suicide in ADHD. Suicidal thinking is related to if you are depressed. Suicide attempts is related to if you're impulsive. So if you have a depressed male ADHD teenager, you have the highest risk individual for a suicide attempt. Not a depressed individual, but an ADHD individual who happens to be male and who happens to be depressed. So he may think of suicide, but he has the disinhibition to act on it. So we began to see not only was there a risk of accidental injury, which was what was happening in childhood, but by adolescence we began to add the second risk of a small but significant risk in suicide. By the way, although it's small, it's five times the risk that we see in the general population of teenagers. And adolescence is the peak time for suicidal thinking. Then we have Rochelle Klein's longitudinal study, which is now the longest running follow-up study ever done. She has followed children for 33 years to a mean age of 41, and she has now begun to show a slight but significant two-and-a-half-fold increase in death in her population. Still small, still 7.8%, but that's a lot of people to not have around by age 41. Then we have two other studies that came out within the past three years, that by Landis and the largest study ever done, which is the entire population of Denmark, uh, by Dalsgaard and colleagues. I believe it was Denmark, not Sweden. And here we start to see real numbers. Uh, children with ADHD are nearly twice as likely to die before leaving childhood. Adults with ADHD are nearly five times more likely to die in the next 10 years than is someone in the typical population. So you can see that the risk doubles in childhood, doubles again by adulthood. Now these studies show that again, it is accidental injury and suicide that seems to be accounting for earlier mortality. What these studies cannot do is to begin to talk about the late life consequences of the disorder. If you make it to adulthood, are you in the clear? So we looked around and we began to say, there's gotta be a way for us to peek into the later years of individuals without following them there. Insurance companies do this all the time. When you apply for medical and particularly for life insurance uh, or for nursing home care insurance, uh, but especially life insurance, the insurance industry is very good at using actuarial data to classify your risk of survival uh, and shorten life expectancy and then to price that in to your insurance or to deny you coverage outright. <clears throat> So in the Milwaukee Longitudinal Study, we had everybody come back for a second day. We did complete physical exams using individuals, uh, nurse practitioners, who are hired by the insurance industry to do just this. And we collected all the data that an insurance company might want to have in order to look at lifespan. And this is what you're about to see. These are my colleagues in the study, so I need to acknowledge my debt of gratitude to particularly Mary Ellen Fisher. Let me tell you, if you want to do a longitudinal study, get Mary Ellen. She is the pit bull of follow-up studies. If Mary Ellen wants to find you, she will find you, right? You cannot hide from this woman. So, 
So thank you, Mary Ellen, and everybody else who participated in the study. The study, if you're not familiar with it, has been going on since 1977 in southeastern Wisconsin. We followed these children and evaluated them every year, or excuse me, every five years until they reached the age of about 27 to 32. Uh, so we have 158 ADHD children. We have 81 matched children from the same neighborhoods and schools. Uh, and we follow them up. Uh, and we have uh, easily close to a 90% retention rate, which is very impressive. Uh, and I learned two things that I'll talk about in the research symposium today. From that, uh, number one, pay them a lot and they will come back. <laughs> and number two, do not give them carte blanche at the hotel. <laughs> we had high school reunions on our bar bill. Boy, do we have to rein that one in real quick, right? Because we said, no, we'll recover all their expenses. You know, just go ahead. Never say that to a young adult with ADHD. Yeah, we got this. We got this. Yeah, so. Yeah. So we had collected all of this data on your health. We had your lipid profiles. We had your weight. We had your family history going back all the way through your grandparents and all the medical problems. Lots and lots of information. But we couldn't do anything with it because we couldn't get our hands on the algorithm, the calculators that the insurance industry uses. They're proprietary. Each insurance company has their own. And while they share data through the Society of Actuaries, uh, they don't necessarily give you theirs and how they're weighting the different variables that they see. They don't just come up with this stuff, by the way. They have millions of people that they study in the population, and they can calculate your mortality risk based upon what group or category you're in, your age, your sex, your race, your income, your education, whether or not you smoke, whether or not you smoke 20 cigarettes a day. They collect all of this, and then they enter it into their formulas based on population risk. And based on this, they're able to then project forward what your life expectancy is likely to be. The problem is that we searched and searched, and we couldn't come up with anything other than some trivial little calculators that you can find on the Internet that took into account your age, your sex, your race, and maybe whether you smoked or not. Four variables. The other problem we had with them is that they're all commercially affiliated and designed to get you to the insurance company's website where you leave your email address and henceforth you will be peppered with advertising from that insurance company. So we didn't want to get involved in that either. Luckily, last September, by chance, I stumbled upon an article in a popular science magazine announcing that the Goldenson Center for Actuarial Studies at the University of Connecticut was going to make available free online their life expectancy calculator that uses 14 variables to project life expectancy of individuals. And I said to myself, wow, it's not commercial, it's academic, it's scientific, it's new, it's based on current population statistics, it's available to us at no charge, and they don't collect your personal information in order to pepper you with advertising. So. That's what got us started down this road. So starting late last September and for the next three to four months, I went through all of our data and got it in the order needed to be able to run it through this calculator from Yukon. And here are all the variables that this calculator wants to know about you. So there's 14 of them. And then we took two of these and we adjusted them further because a study was published late last year, by the end of the year, that was done in Europe that actually refined some of the risks. It showed that if you smoked, 
you would lose between two and three years off your life. If you smoked 20 cigarettes a day or more, it was 6.6, roughly. So we went back and readjusted our data based on not only whether or not you were a tobacco user, but whether or not you were smoking so many a day. We did the same thing for alcohol based on alcohol use. And then the other one that we adjusted is there was new data that became available that showed that for every year after high school you get in education, you can add almost a year to your life. So education alone is a predictor of life expectancy. And we didn't have that in this calculator. We just had whether or not you graduated or whether or not you graduated college. Those are not very refined or nuanced variables. So we readjusted them based on the new studies on education. So just so you know, uh, we're using UConn's calculator, but we're doing some further adjustments based on even more recent research to give us an even better index. So here we go. I discovered this over Christmas last year. Uh, I spent a couple of days going through. I had to enter all 240 children individually into this calculator and then code all their data and everything. So it took a while, but it was a snowy day and I had a nice bottle of wine next to me. So. <laughs> and I stayed in my pajamas all day and I just entered data, right? So, you know, we lead a pretty sad life in research. It, it's not... <laughs> It's not the glamour everybody thinks it is. It's not the travel and the speeches and the Lifetime Achievement Awards. It's sitting in your jammies for nine hours entering data, you know. Get a life. What's wrong with you? Okay, so enough of the fun stuff. Here's the real stuff. The first thing we did is to compare children who had been diagnosed in childhood against the control group. So this has nothing to do with whether your disorder persisted. This is just a diagnosis in childhood. And what did we find? Well, as you can see here, we found that there was nearly a nine-year reduction in healthy life expectancy uh, compared to the typical group. So the group on the left is the ADHD childhood group. The group on the right is the typical group. And you can see the differences. By the way, the beauty of this calculator is it lets you do something many algorithms don't let you do. You can break down life expectancy into healthy years, unhealthy years, and total. And you can see that ADHD in our study was associated with an increase in unhealthy years of life at the end of life, a decrease in healthy life years, and hence a decrease overall. So growing up with ADHD, whether or not your ADHD persists, can subtract about nine years off your life, especially healthy years, which is the ones we care about. That's greater than what Friedman found. It's greater than what we see for other risk factors. It was a very sobering finding. And then we went back and did what everybody wants us to do, and that is, so what happens if your disorder persists? What happens if at age 27 you continue to meet criteria for the disorder? And, of course, as you would expect, it's worse. So we have a nearly 13-year reduction in healthy life years in the persistent group. Notice the non-persistent group, which is between the two, it splits the difference. So even if you outgrew your ADHD, that is, you weren't diagnosable in adulthood, most of these children did not outgrow the disorder. Only 14% were truly uh, recovered from disorder by adulthood. But these were individuals who were no longer diagnosable. Subthreshold, what John Rady calls a shadow syndrome. Uh, and you can see that even they had some risk of shorter life, but it was the kids with the persistent ADHD that we, uh, we were worried about. 
And then if you look over on the right, you'll see their total life expectancy as well. So what are we seeing? We're seeing uh, approximately 12 plus almost 13 year reduction in healthy life, an increase of about one and a half years in unhealthy life, and overall a reduction in your life uh, that is considerable. Why? What was going on in the lives of these children that drove these statistics? First thing we did is to look at what we call the proximal, the near-term, the first-order variables that we're using to calculate life expectancy. Out of all 14 variables in the calculator, which ones were worse for the ADHD kids? Because that would tell us what do we need to pay attention to in their life? How do we need to help them lead a longer, healthier life? And these were the differences that were driving the results of that study. Less education, of course. A third of our kids did not finish high school. That is, by the way, has been improved markedly since the 1990s and the revision to IDEA. We now, in current longitudinal studies, such as Steve Hinshaw's and others, looking at children growing up since IDEA, are finding that they are uh, graduating with the same frequency as the typical population. So we have seen an improvement, at least in educational outcomes, Oh, yeah, yeah, indeed. Well, it's thanks to you, and largely thanks to Chad back in the late 1980s and early 1990s and their advocacy work uh, in Congress that got them reauthorized into IDEA, where they had been neglected in IDEA prior to that time. So in, in any case, uh, obviously education, income, but now you start to get into some of the medical and health and lifestyle variables, increased drinking, increased smoking, smoking more than 20 cigarettes a day, uh, poor overall health in general at the outcome, uh, decreased sleep, and of course, increased risk-taking with a motor vehicle. All of these are entering into the calculator and leading you to have a reduced life expectancy. But we knew from the Friedman study of conscientiousness that these first-order variables, while they clearly explain why your life is a little shorter, are not the only explanation. There is the elephant in the room, the gorilla in the background. There is what we call the second order traits, the background traits that are leading you to engage in those first order adverse activities. Just as Friedman found, it didn't matter whether you smoked or drank. What mattered was your personality, your conscientiousness, your disinhibition, because that is why you were doing all of those other things. So if you really want to understand life expectancy, you don't just look at smoking and drinking. You look at traits that predispose people to do those more than the typical population. So we did that. We didn't have conscientiousness measured in the study. We did have an outstanding measure of disinhibition. And disinhibition is the inverse of conscientiousness. They are highly negatively correlated and they share the same genes. The genes for one are the genes for the other. So I didn't have to measure conscientiousness because I had a proxy measure for it in the data all along, which is this 19-item rating scale of disinhibition, poor impulse control. And here's what we found. Exactly as Friedman found, we found that life, the variation in human life expectancy, 31% of the variance was accounted for by that trait. Now, as lay people, perhaps, you don't appreciate that. That is huge, absolutely stunningly huge. We do not get numbers like this in psychology at all. 
Nobody explains 30% of the variation in outcome. It's just something we don't even consider. We're looking for things like you see here, 1%, 2%, 3%. And then everybody goes, yippee, I got a significant result. Yeah, let's publish this study. Look, I found something that's related to life expectancy or whatever you're studying. Yeah. So we were kind of blown away by the fact that we had replicated all of the other research in the health arena looking at life expectancy by once again finding that one trait explains a third of the variation in how long you're going to live. The other three traits made a difference. You can see here your intelligence, which makes sense because it determines how much education you're going to get. Uh, whether or not you were a very hostile, depressed individual, irritable uh, was a small factor. Uh, and then working memory. But the big kahuna was conscientiousness, low inhibition. Then we did something that the calculator couldn't do for us, but we could. We genotyped all these children after a follow-up, looking for ADHD risk genes that back at that time were identified as likely big risk genes. There have been many others. We now know that ADHD is related at least to 25 and probably 45 different gene sites in the human genome. But back then, these were the, the genes people were paying attention to. And they're all related to dopamine. So we have the DRD4 gene, the DAT1 gene, and DBH, known as dopamine beta hydroxylase. By the way, all of these genes vary in their length. That's why they're called polymorphisms. And uh, as is typical in ADHD, the longer the gene, the higher the risk for ADHD, to put it uh, very, uh, let me just say, to put it simply, it's more complicated than that. Uh, but the number of duplications of the gene on the chromosome is a determinant of risk. So we had these genes, and just on a lark, I said, okay, uh, this is enough. You know, we, we know what's happening here. We know about life expectancy. We know about behavioral inhibition. You know, let's just go ahead and publish, but I just had this itch to say, well, we also know that life expectancy is partly genetic, so let's see if any of our genes have anything to do with this. So on a lark, I just ran some analyses based on the genes that we had. And again, surprise, surprise. We found that the DAT1 gene uh, is able to uh, account for life expectancy, as is the uh, DBH gene. Indeed, these genes account for five years and two years, respectively, off your life, independently of any other variables in the study. Let me put it in another way. If you have ADHD and low inhibition, and either or both of these genes, we can take another seven years off your life just for the genes. So now we're not talking about 13 years off your healthy life. We're talking about 20 and these are genes that are relatively common in ADHD individuals, not in everybody, but common. We wanted to know, how are they doing it? If the genes aren't doing it through ADHD and they're not doing it through disinhibition, what are the genes doing? And we found that they were linked to your risk for alcohol abuse and nicotine use primarily, but also to some extent for education and exercise. Quite surprising. So to summarize, we can now conclusively state at least based on our follow-up study, that ADHD does impact life expectancy as one would expect, given all the other surrounding data that were available in the literature that you could use to infer that. Well, now we could demonstrate it. 
Now, like any good scientist, we like to tell people about the limitations of our study. Uh, of course, it's small samples, so it needs to be replicated, but I'm confident that it will be because it agrees with all the other studies that are out there that we can look at by which one could hypothesize a problem with life expectancy. So, you know, it's not like this is new. We knew there was increased mortality from the other four studies or five studies looking at mortality. But it's a small sample. It needs to be replicated. It's a clinic-referred sample, which means it doesn't necessarily extend out to community-identified or school-identified kids who are usually milder in their ADHD than kids referred to a children's hospital are going to be. So we're, we're really looking at the more severe spectrum of ADHD uh, in our study. Uh, of course, in addition to that, we're studying primarily males, so we need to ask guys like uh, Lee and Hinshaw and others who are following hundreds of girls now into adulthood to please replicate our findings with the girls. By the way, girls on average live slightly longer than boys. Uh, that's all in the actuarial data, so we would expect that it's not quite as bad for the girls, but um, the girls do all the other stuff that the boys do that shorten life expectancy, so for girls, it's probably going to be about the same. But we don't know that, so let's be uh, careful until we replicate these. Our findings could be very conservative in the sense that people with ADHD are not good reporters of their life. Until they get into their early 30s, they tend to minimize and underreport their symptoms, their impairments, and its effect on their life and on other people. Uh, so if that is true, then they probably have underreported many of the variables in our study that were based on self-report. Obviously, they didn't underreport their weight because we weighed them and we had their cholesterol and so on. So what, what have we learned? Well, apart from the sobering aspect of the study, the good news to come out of the study is that of the 14 variables in the calculator, nine of them can be changed. They're perfectly malleable. So now that we know what's wrong, we know what we have to do. These are the things that you can change. So we need to start looking closely at these variables in the lives of our children, our adults with ADHD, because if we find that these are high risk for the particular individual that we're worried about, then we can start to do something about this. And we know what to do because we know that, in general, at the level of governments, uh, as well as industry, but especially at the level of public health service and CDC and so forth, these are the things that we're trying to change in the general population anyway. We're trying to get people to stop smoking, to lose weight, to eat a better diet, to exercise more, to stop abusing alcohol to excess, uh, to get more sleep, to pay attention to their health and their lifestyle. We spend a lot, a lot of money, billions and billions of dollars every year to try to reduce these risks. So we can do that for ADHD if we will simply broaden the lens of our evaluation, our awareness, our advocacy to begin to include medical health and lifestyle issues and not just mental health and education issues. So the good news is we can change this. You only have to change one or two variables to change your life expectancy. So this is not cast in stone. <clears throat> However, the, if you want to call it bad news, but the news that will cause you to hesitate a little bit is in the background behind all of these variables is that. 
And that ain't so malleable. That is not so changeable. That's that personality trait. And it probably explains, excuse me, we believe, why people with ADHD find it so hard to engage in self-improvement, even if they want to. They are more likely to fail in a smoking cessation program. They are more likely to fail in a weight loss program in an obesity clinic. They are more likely to have difficulties with regulating insulin and diabetes and to have difficulties getting a good night's sleep and all of these other things. They're going to have a lot more difficulty changing than the general population because underneath all of these first order risk factors that are changeable lies this trait that interferes with self-regulation. And you can't engage in self-improvement if you have a deficit in self-regulation. It becomes very, very difficult. Uh, They are the antithesis of each other. So we need to look for ways to try to address that background trait in addition to focusing on the first order, malleable, changeable traits. So what can I summarize for you out of this study before we run out of time? Number one, ADHD is not an attention disorder. It's a disorder of self-regulation and the brain's executive functions. And that explains all of the trouble across their lifespan that we see. You wouldn't see that with just an attention disorder, but you would expect to see that because self-regulation is ubiquitous in adult life. It is the basis of our effective functioning and our ability to lead our lives to improve our own long-term welfare. As a result, the disorder is associated with numerous domains of impairment. We've known that for decades. What we have discovered in these data, uh, as well as the other health data out there, is that ADHD is a public health disorder. It is not a mental health disorder. ADHD impacts public health in virtually every domain with which our governments concern themselves with regard to the quality of human life. And therefore, we need to start looking at this as the health disorder that it is, and not just as an exclusive DSM-5 mental health and educational problem that we have done for the last 50 years. We need more research, of course, but the research that we have already is telling us that we're on the right track here, that we do have this problem and we need to do something about it. Now, let me point out to you the size of these risks. Because when I talk life expectancy, most people aren't familiar with it. And they hear 12 years left life and it's like, so what's the big deal? You're probably gonna die in your 50s and 60s rather than at a mean age of 75, which is the mean for the population if we don't know anything about you. That's a couple years longer for women than men. But that's the average, up around 75. Um, But let me put it in context. ADHD is worse than any other health and lifestyle practice our government is trying to change. It's worse than all of them. ADHD will reduce your life expectancy by at least 13 years of healthy life. Smoking is two. Smoking 20 cigarettes a day is six. Your weight problem is one to two. Your diabetes is probably up around five, maybe six years. In other words, ADHD is worse than the top four conditions the public health service wants you to pay attention to. Smoking, alcohol, obesity, diabetes, and so on. Add them all together, 
ADHD is worse than all of them. Why? Because ADHD predisposes to all of them, not just one of them. So if people see these numbers and say, so what? Well, that's so what? You are spending huge sums of money to try to get people to quit smoking, drink less, and exercise. And this is even worse. And you are spending nothing on helping the longevity and the quality of life of these individuals in adulthood. So what do we need to do? First, we need to make sure that families of ADHD children and young adults are well aware of this risk. Just as we learned that driving is a problem, risky sex is a problem, getting through high school is a problem, and we started to put resources behind those to try to do something about them, we can do the same thing here. We can start to educate families and adults with ADHD that the risk is wider than we thought it was. The domains that are implicated are those related to quality of life and longevity. We need you to take this even more seriously than you did before. So if you are telling me that you don't want treatment for your ADHD, you better know what you're asking for. And you don't. So my opinion, as you know, is I would rather scare the hell out of you to motivate you to get into treatment than to tell you how gifted you are and we don't have to worry about it. <clears throat> no, no, sorry. It's a difference of opinion. But, well, I'm a little biased, but when you lose a couple of family members to ADHD, you start to take it seriously. So we need to make sure that professionals in the primary care area of medicine know these data, because they're the ones who treat this stuff, right? The primary care guys, the family practitioners, the cardiologists, and so on, they're the ones who are being asked to treat cholesterol, weight, and so on, uh, and we need to make sure that they're aware of this, and they're not. So a few months ago when I spoke at, spoke at the Naval Hospital in Norfolk, I was talking to just this population, and they were stunned that they don't look for this at all. And I said, if somebody comes into your clinic and they can't change their cholesterol, they can't lose weight, they can't take medication like for their lipid profiles, they can't quit smoking. If somebody comes back and you've tried to help them and they're not responding, the first thing you should do is screen them for adult ADHD. Bar none. Because that's probably what is underlying this. Right? So you need to do something. Thank you. Thank you. It just makes sense, right? All right. Okay. Go ahead and treat the people who are going to respond. But the people who don't respond are probably people with this background trait of low conscientiousness, high ADHD symptoms. Shouldn't we at least look to see if it's there instead of just writing them off as a motivational problem and you don't care. And one day you'll wake up and smell the coffee and change your life. But I'm done with you. I did what I was supposed to do. You're not following orders. You're not adhering to my recommendations. Goodbye. Right. And so now we found people who were saying, how do I get hold of an adult ADHD screener? You know, because maybe that will improve my success within my practice. So that's where we need to go with our primary care colleagues, in addition to talking to folks like you who have to live with this condition in yourself and your family. Then I think we need to come back and reach out to our mental health colleagues, and we already do, but we need to make sure that they broaden the lens of their assessment to include health and lifestyle, not just ADHD symptoms, impairment in school, how many friends do you have, and the usual things that we focus on like comorbidity. 
Very rarely do we find mental health professionals asking about exercise, weight, tobacco, maybe, alcohol, maybe, sleep, no, nutrition, no. We need to broaden that lens. We need to do a more comprehensive evaluation of the people that we're being asked to be responsible for in order to address those nine malleable traits that we can do something about. And then we need to treat it. We know what to do with those risk factors, but what do we do about conscientiousness? One of the things we do know is that our ADHD medications, our adult cognitive behavior therapy programs that target executive deficits, our coaching and so forth, do try in one way or another to get at the executive functions generally and disinhibition specifically. And I think we need to apply them more widely, more vigilantly, more forcefully to try to get a handle on this underlying trait that is keeping you from succeeding in changing your life. <clears throat> and I think if we can do that, then we will start to see these data, excuse me, begin to improve. But the problem we face right now is that the public, people with ADHD, people in primary care who work there, even people in mental health, don't have this information. They don't know these risks. And so we need to educate them about that. ADHD is the most treatable disorder in psychiatry. There is no disorder that responds as well to the treatments for the number of people that respond to the degree that we get with our treatments in any other area of psychiatry. That is very good news. The problem is, is that people with the disorder don't get access to those services widely, and the people who are caring for them don't know about this information. I think you can change that. Thank you. You have been listening to Ask the NRC podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram at Help for ADHD or visit our website at helpforadhd.org. That's H-E-L-P, the number four, ADHD.org. 